All right, we're in John chapter 13. Tonight we're picking up with verse 21. And at the end of last week, we we were looking at the beginning of the Last Supper, you might say. Jesus' last night with His disciples. And the last thing we covered was Jesus made an allusion to the fact that somebody at the table was going to turn on Him. He he quoted from Psalm 41.9, which is a a, a verse that's actually about Ahithophel, the, the advisor to King David and his close friend who abandoned him to support Absalom, who had, who had revolted against David. Jesus quoted that to say, the same thing's going to happen to me. One that I've shared bread with is going to turn his heel on me. Well, tonight we're going to continue in that chapter and we'll see how he makes that prediction explicit. We'll spend a good bit of time talking about Judas, but we'll also talk about four truths that Jesus shared with these closest friends of His. You know, I think it's really, really interesting that with just a few hours before the cross, Jesus chose to focus on certain things. We saw last week He focused on loving them through washing their feet. This week we'll see four things He wanted them to know and, and what those things mean to us. So since we're going to talk about Judas, let's before we get into the Word, let's talk about what we know about him. Alright, so Judas, the name Judas was a very popular name in first century Israel. Uh, not surprisingly, it hasn't been popular in the last 2,000 years. Um, but Jesus had a brother named Judas. That's the book of Jude is written by him. Uh, there's another disciple named Judas, also uh, named Thaddeus. Uh, and we see that name mentioned in the first century in non-biblical writings quite often. It, it was a Greek version of the name Judah. And so this was a patriotic time in Israel, so it was very in vogue in that time to name your kids after figures from Israelite history. So Judah, the, the tribe of Judah, one of the patriarchs. Um, there were other examples, like there were several Simons in the New Testament. That's Simeon. Uh, we, we see James. There's two Jameses in the disciples, and James is really uh, the Greek version of Jacob. And then Mary, or Miriam, and then Levi. So lots of examples of historic names that are in the New Testament, referring back to the Old Testament. Judas is one of those. Now, his name is Cariot. You know that people didn't have last names back then. So when you hear him say Judas is Cariot, that wasn't his surname. What does that mean? That's a big debate among Bible scholars. Most believe it was a reference to his hometown. That's the way a lot of folks were known. Jesus of Nazareth, that's a good example. Uh, In the Old Testament, there are two towns that it could be referring to. There's one in Moab, just across the Jordan, where a lot of Israelites lived in New Testament time, and it was called Kerioth. And then there was one in southern Judah called Kerioth-Hezron. So he could have been from either of those towns. He would have been you know, Judas from Kerioth, Judas is Cariot. There's an alternate theory that some people believe because there's, a, there's an Aramaic word that sounds a little like Iscariot that means assassin, literally dagger man. And so some people bring that up and say, oh, well, you know, Judas was an assassin. That's why he did what he did. But when you read the Gospel of John, you'll see this in a minute. John refers to, to, to uh, Judas as the son of Simon Iscariot. So if the word meant assassin, it's talking about the dad, not the son. So I think it refers to his hometown. That's just my theory. We know that he was chosen specifically by Jesus to be one of the twelve. Anybody could follow Jesus, but he only chose twelve 
to be his disciples, and he intentionally chose Judas. And that means he spent nearly every waking hour over about three years with Jesus. That means he heard nearly every word he said in that time. He saw hundreds of miracles. That also means he endured the same hardships that they did, went without food, was uh, mocked, was, uh, went without places to stay. It was a hard life. It, it also means that at that one point when Jesus sent them out two by two, he went out with one of the other disciples and preached the gospel and did miracles. But we also know, according to John 12 verse 4, that he volunteered to hold the money bag for the disciples and he used to take from it whenever he wanted. So he was a thief. We also know that before what we're about to read in John, 20, John 13, Judas had already met with the chief priests to arrange the betrayal of Jesus. And, and what was the issue? Why did they need an insider? I mean, they knew where Jesus was. They had the, the military might and the, and the permission to arrest him. The problem was the people loved Jesus. The people were flocked around him. Some thought he was Messiah. All of them were interested in him, and, and he was very popular. And if they arrested him in broad daylight, there might be a riot. And that's the last thing they wanted. The chief priests, the last thing they wanted was to cause any kind of disturbance because the Romans then might come and take away their temple. That was their biggest fear. In fact, from an earthly standpoint, from a human standpoint, if you would have asked the chief priests back then, why are you so upset about Jesus? Why do you want to get him out of the way? They would have said, because we're afraid he's going to cause a disturbance and the Romans are going to take away our temple. Nothing mattered more to them than that. And of course, when Jesus went and cleansed the temple and when he said things like, tear this temple down and I'll raise it up in three days, that just confirmed to them that he needed to go. So why did they need an insider? Well, because if they arrested him in broad daylight, it would cause a disturbance. They needed someone who could locate where Jesus was after dark, after the sun went down. And that's why they needed Judas. Judas had already gone and made those arrangements. And then the last thing, according to John 6, 64, this is the hardest one for us to wrap our minds around. Jesus knew from the beginning who would betray him. I mean, it says it there in black and white in John 6, 64, Jesus knew from the beginning who would betray him. Now, here's what we don't know. Why did Jesus do it? Now, a lot of ink has been spilled. A lot of sermons have been preached on this. I want to share with you four possible motives just so we can think this through. The first one I would mention to you is greed. He was obviously a thief, and you don't steal. I mean, I know this is an obvious statement. You don't steal if you're content with what you have. So he wanted more. And we, we know that a chapter earlier in John 12, of course, we didn't cover this since we started with chapter 13. There's that story about the woman who anoints Jesus with expensive uh, ointment, ex expensive perfume. And who's the one who protests? It's Judas. He says that, that, that perfume could have been sold and the money given to the poor, but he didn't care about the poor. So perhaps that incident was the final straw. Judas had been following Jesus, had been putting up with poverty for three years, thinking eventually this is going to pay off. Eventually this, this is like uh, investing everything and hoping someday it's going to pay off. But that night he saw, no matter what happens, this man is never going to be someone who rewards me financially. And maybe that's what caused him to turn on Jesus. The second possibility is disappointment. Uh, a different kind of disappointment. If Judas believed like so many did, that Jesus had come 
to be a, a Davidic Messiah, to, to overthrow the Romans and establish a new kingdom on earth. It must have confused him how often Jesus said things like, love your enemies, pray for those who hate you. If the Romans command you to carry something one mile, carry it too. It must have annoyed him and confused him that Jesus would respond to curses with love and that Jesus never seemed to curse the Romans, never seemed to criticize the Romans who he probably hated. And so at some point, maybe he just said, this guy is not who I thought he was. He needs to be gotten rid of. There's a third possibility. I've, I've heard this theory that Judas was trying to spark a revolution that his hope was that when the men came to arrest Jesus, Jesus would finally use his incredible power to fight back. And that would start a revolution. The people would rally to his side and, and the Romans would be overthrown. Uh, then there's a fourth one. There are some people who say, well, this is just his destiny. If, uh, I mean, it was prophesied in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be betrayed. And if Jesus knew, chose Judas, knowing he would betray him, well, then did Judas really have a choice? Now, personally, I think option three, that Judas did it to try to spark a revolution, I think that's giving him credit he doesn't deserve. The Bible never implies that there was any kind of uh, righteous or zealous motive in Judas doing what he did. And, and I think the idea that Judas didn't have a choice, I think that lets him off the hook too. I think Judas still had free will. And here's what I base that on. In the Old Testament, the book of Jonah, God sends Jonah to Nineveh. And remember, after a while, he, go, he finally obey, obeys. After he's been swallowed by a, by a big fish and spit up on the land, Jonah finally obeys and goes to the city of Nineveh. And what does he say? He preaches a message that offers no hope whatsoever. Then 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. That's all he says. That's his message. You talk about hellfire and brimstone, right? I mean, he didn't even offer a chance for repentance. He just said, you're all going to die in 40 days. And yet the people repented and God didn't destroy them. So to me, what that says is even when uh, God says, here's what I foresee you doing, if you repent, then the plan changes. I I, that's what I believe. That's what I see in the story of Jonah. And I believe that if Judas at the last minute had said, no, I will not betray my Lord, then we'd remember jo Judas completely differently today. I don't think he was predestined to do what he did. I think he had a choice. Just my opinion. So I think uh, if I had to guess, uh, and I don't thankfully, but if I had to guess, it, it was probably greed and, and maybe that revolutionary idea that motivated him. And I hope that's been interesting because now it gets more uncomfortable because there's a bigger question than why did Judas did, why did Judas do what he did? And we'll get to that at the end. So let's pick up with verse 21. After saying these things, Judas, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Now, I said this last week, it, you have to get out of your mind the picture of 
da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper, they weren't all sitting on one side of a big long banquet table. Uh, we know this because it says they reclined at table. Now, it's hard for us to understand. In fact, I can't picture how this can possibly be comfortable, but you, you laid, you lay sideways with your, all your weight on one elbow and eat, ate with the other hand. Uh, you have to picture kind of a U-shaped formation, uh, a, a low table covered with, if this is a Passover meal, uh, lamb, bitter herbs, uh, unleavened bread, and, and wine, and then a U-shaped formation of pillows around it, and each one of the disciples in Jesus would have put an elbow on that pillow and leaned with their head either near or over that table and reached over with their left hand and eaten that way. Again, I don't know how that's comfortable, but that's the way they did it back then. Uh, and when you think about it that way, that's a really intimate way to sit. I mean, when it says that John was leaning against his bosom, it was literally true. They were, they were cheek to jowl, you might say. I mean, they were right there. Um, the, I said John. You notice the, the word John doesn't appear in this passage. It does say the disciple whom Jesus loved. Some of you know this. Maybe most of you know this. John never mentions the name John in the Gospel of John, unless he's talking about John the Baptist. And so most people assume that when he says the disciple whom Jesus loved, he's referring to himself. Now, I remember learning that when I was a little boy in Sunday school at Hope Baptist Church and thinking, wow, that's, that's really cocky. You know, that, that's John walking around saying, look at me, I'm the one Jesus loves, like I'm the teacher's pet. But then when I grew up, I looked at it differently, and this is the way I believe now. Jesus, uh, John wasn't saying, I'm the Lord's favorite. He's saying, my name doesn't matter. All that matters about me is that I'm someone Jesus loved. I'll name all the others, but for me, my name doesn't count. It's a humble thing that John's doing. I don't think the Holy Spirit would have inspired John to write something that was arrogant or boastful. So here's John, and he's right next to Jesus, and Judas is on the other side. Peter is somewhere across the way, on the, on the right side or the left side of that U-shape. And Peter says, uh, you know, indicates to John, remember, those, those two had worked together back in Galilee. They probably had their own little sign language. He indicated, hey, ask him who he's talking about when he says, one of you will betray me. And so John asks him. And verse 26 says, Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Something that's always puzzled me, and maybe it does you, is why did the other disciples still not understand that Judas was the traitor? I mean, Jesus said, the one I give this morsel of bread to, he'll be the one. Uh, Matthew tells us that Judas even asked him straight out, is it me, Lord? And Jesus said, you've said it yourself. So why were they all so surprised? Why didn't they understand? When Judas got up and ran out, why did they say, oh, well, he's just, we must be running low on, on bread and he's going out to buy some more bread? 
Or, or maybe the Lord sent him to give a, a donation to the poor. I mean, and, and then later we'll see when Judas leads that mob into the Garden of Gethsemane. All the disciples are shocked to see him on the other side. It's, it's sort of like if you've ever seen that, uh, if you've ever seen the end of Bridge on the River Kwai, right? Best movies ever, one of the best endings ever. And, and William Holden, you know, is, is there to blow up the bridge and, and Alec Guinness is the, is the British guy. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going down a rabbit trail, but uh, you know, he's been building that bridge and Guinness sees Holden and he goes, you, like, what are you doing here? And I, th- I think that's what the disciples said when they saw Judas at the head of that mob. Well, how did they not know since Jesus had told them? And there's only two possible answers. And one is, that even though they were very close to one another, maybe Jesus said it very quietly. John asked him a direct question and only John heard his response. And maybe when Judas said, it's not me, Lord, is it? And he said, yeah, that's what you, you said it yourself. Maybe no one else heard that. That's one possibility. The other possibility, and this is the one I favor, is the disciples just didn't know which way was up. And I'm not, I don't say that to insult them. I think we would have been the same in that, in that position, especially without the Holy Spirit. The whole time through the Gospels, you see, they were always about five steps behind Jesus, not physically, but mentally. They were always playing catch-up, always trying to figure out, what did he mean when he said that? I mean, think about the time when they're in the boat and Jesus said, hey, avoid the, the yeast of the scribes and Pharisees. And they said, I think he's mad at us because we didn't bring any bread. Jesus said, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying watch out for their teaching. And I think this is my theory. This is another one of those cases. Well, I know he said Judas and he gave the bread to Judas, but what do you think he really meant? They were just confused. Let's just remember, let's cut them some slack. They didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. And none of this stuff made sense to them. Nothing was going the way they thought it would. But I want to focus on Jesus giving that piece of bread to Judas. Now, I don't have anything that I can directly quote from Scripture to prove what I'm about to say. All I'm basing this on is what I know about Jesus and His character. I said earlier that I thought Judas, I'm, pretty, I'm sure that Judas had free will. And I think that in all the things Jesus did that night, washing Judas's feet, sitting next to him at the feast, handing him that little morsel of bread, even, even that action, all of that was intended to give Judas one last chance. I mean, all of that, if you were going to betray somebody and they were being that kind to you, wouldn't that melt your heart? Wouldn't that make you say, forget it, I don't need the 30 pieces of silver, I'm going to go spit in Caiaphas's eye, I will not do this. I think, again, that's, this is me, I think Jesus did everything He could to give Judas a last chance to redeem Himself, to not go through with this. And you might say, well, Jeff, didn't He need to be betrayed? I mean, didn't the whole plan depend on that? No. God's plans never depend on human beings. He uses us. But when human beings fail to do the will of God, or in this case, when they do what's right, God finds another way. Jesus would have died for our sins no matter what, no matter what Judas did. God is not dependent on fallen, fickle human beings. And aren't you glad? And then the last thing before we move on, you notice that last little thing he says, it was night. 
He's not just setting the scene for us like, a, like the writer of a novel. Uh, there's, there's a theme in the book of John that comes up over and over again about darkness and light. I just want to quote a few examples for you. I, I think I put them in your notes, but chapter 1, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Chapter 3, 20 through 21, Jesus says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And then 8.12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John has been writing all these things, and then he gets to this the end, the last night, and he tells us this all took place under cover of darkness. Darkness, which is what you need in order to accomplish secret, dirty things that you can't get done in broad daylight. So now that Judas is gone, he has he left. The, the devil has entered into him, and he is bound and determined to carry this betrayal out. Now that he's gone, it's just Jesus and the eleven faithful disciples, and he can start preparing them for what is to come. That night, and in the days ahead. So verse 31 says, When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. What is he talking about? Because we say glorified and we think of something uh, like being on a stage and, and someone announcing uh, what a great person you are uh, or a spotlight on you and everyone standing and clapping. How is Jesus, Son of Man, going to be glorified in these next few moments? For that matter, there's a, there's a verse that we sometimes hear about here at Christmas. I, I'm not trying to sound snobby. I'm not really a, a classical music aficionado, but I do like to listen to Handel's Messiah around Christmas time. And one of my favorite songs in that whole suite is, is, is a quote from Isaiah 40, verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. I would sing it for you, but... I want y'all to stay. Um, but you think about that verse. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it. When Isaiah wrote those words 700 years before, and all those 700 years since, uh, God's people had been reading that and thinking, okay, I know that means the Messiah. What do you think they pictured? The glory of the Lord being revealed. All flesh shall see it. I'm sure they pictured a king on a throne and all the Gentiles bowing down before that king. What they didn't picture was the king on a cross. That's what Jesus was talking about. Son of man will be glorified, meaning at the cross is when people will finally see for sure, once and for all, what I'm all about, what God is all about. Because at the cross, what does Paul tell us in Romans? He became both just and the justifier of all our sins. He, he, his Wrath against, uh, against evil was poured out on the cross, but His love for us was fully displayed. The Son of Man will be glorified, and God will glorify Himself in Him. Verse 33, He says, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek Me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And I love Him calling them little children. These are grown men, of course, but it's very affectionate. Kind of shows you how he felt about them. But also, 
There's a tenderness there. Listen, you've been with me all along. There's nothing that I asked you to do that you didn't do. There's no place I went that you didn't go. But this next place I'm going, you can't come. This is something I have to do alone. Verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Which brings up the question, what is new about this commandment? If you know the Gospels, you know Jesus has talked about loving others over and over again. I mean, not least of which when someone asked him, what is the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, doesn't that include loving each other within the body of Christ? What's new is not the command. The new, what's new is the standard. He says, love one another like I've loved you. That hasn't been said before. He expects us to love like He loves. Now, that's a high bar, isn't it? I know that I've, I've shared this story before, but um, when I was doing my first wedding, I was still in seminary. Uh, <laughs> it was a, a couple from my hometown, um, and they invited me to do their wedding. I remember one of my friends that I went to high school with met me beforehand. He said, now, Jeff, is this going to be legal? I mean, you're... <laughs> You don't even have a church. Are they going to walk away and find out they've been shacking up all this time? And, you know, and I said, no, no, I'm, I'm licensed. It's okay. But I decided to preach on Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't do that often because a lot of folks don't understand that passage. And, and, and a wedding... Nobody came, comes to hear the preacher preach, and so there's not really time to explain it well. But my motive was this. I wanted that groom, guy I'd grown up with all my life, I wanted him to understand. Love doesn't just mean I have warm feelings towards you. It doesn't just mean I won't abuse you or I won't leave you. Love means you lay down your life. Love means you put her ahead of you. Anybody who understands that about Ephesians 5 is not going to worry about what the word submit means. They're going to see that and think, oh, well, if I had a husband like that, I'd submit to him gladly. Jesus is telling us to love each other that way. It's not just husbands and wives. This is the way we should love one another. And then he says, by this all people will know you're my disciples. Think about that. He doesn't say, they will know you're my disciples if you go to church. If you don't cuss or drink or chew or you know, go with girls that do. And that's what we think. We think that we stand out by our strict adherence to certain codes. Those codes are usually good. Some of them we just make up, but some, most of them are good. But no, we're supposed to set up, be set apart by how we love each other. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes the world sees the love that God's people have and they're drawn to us, but lots of times they don't. Let's remember that. And for all the ways we give the disciples a hard time, for all the ways we see them fail in the accounts of the gospel, let's give them credit for this. I think they stuck together really well after the crucifixion. You may never have thought about this, but where are they when Jesus appears to them on Easter Sunday? They're together in the upper room. Same place they met with Jesus the last time. 
you would think, and this is what happens whenever there's any kind of, uh, any kind of arrest, right, in, in any kind of political conspiracy or any kind of group like that, immediately everybody turns on each other. I mean, you would have predicted if you'd been there, oh, they're going to hate Peter, they're going to shame him for, for denying Jesus, and then they're going to shame Thomas for not believing the resurrection. There's no evidence that any of that happened. Instead, they stuck together. They didn't scatter. They didn't turn on each other. I think they were doing their best to fulfill Christ's commandment. Now, having said that, let's talk about Peter. Verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus just said, I'm going someplace you can't go. Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. What did he mean when he said to Peter, you will follow afterward? Follow him where? Well, to his own cross. He's going to follow him to his own cross. Now, we don't know this for 100% certain because it's not in the Scriptures, but early church tradition says Peter was crucified. In some traditions, he was crucified upside down. Again, we can't take that to the bank, but we believe strongly that 11 of the 12 disciples died a martyr's death, and Peter was one of them. Jesus was saying, you can't go with me to the cross now, but you have your own cross waiting. And whether it was a literal cross or Peter was martyred in some other way, Either way, we need to understand something, and this is not often said today, but that's the call of a disciple. Remember what Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you must pick up your cross and follow me. He didn't mean an ornamental cross that you wear around your neck. He didn't even mean a prop cross that you drag around on the sidewalk so everybody can see how holy you are. He meant you need to be ready to die. Some of you know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In his classic book, uh, The Cost of Discipleship, his famous line is, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's not a very good sales pitch, is it? I mean, any other guru says, follow me and I'll teach you the secrets of success, secrets of enlightenment. You'll have the, the life you've always wanted. And Jesus says, follow me and you'll have a chance to die. You have a day, chance to die for something important. Maybe that's why Jesus' movement, although he had a lot of popularity, he never really had a big movement. And remember, the, ran, the man who wrote those words, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die, was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who did die a martyr's death, standing up to the Nazis. So, brings me to my final point. We started off talking about what Judas' motives might have been. And my guess is most of you found that pretty interesting. Not because I'm so skilled, but because we like that kind of subject matter. I mean, most of us, if we're honest, we like true crime stories, right? We like, uh, we like stories about uh, assassins and, and what, what could have motivated this person to, to shoot the president or what could have motivated this person to do this awful deed. And we feel a little dirty when we think about such things, but we're, all, we're also fascinated with them. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're purer in mind than I am. But I think part of the reason we enjoy that is it takes some of the pressure off of us. That's a really evil person. Not me. 
Not me. I, I just I just yelled at my kids. I didn't kill anybody. I just, you know, I just cheated a little on my taxes. I didn't I didn't murder anyone. So now that we've talked about Judas, I want to bring you the real question. The real question isn't why did Judas betray Jesus? The real question we need to ask ourselves is, what will it take for me to betray him? What will it take for me to turn my back on him? What will he ask me to do that will cause me to say, I can't go there with you, Jesus. I can't give you control of that part of me. I'm, this is where you and I part. Because we all have, until we reach that point of absolute perfection in our walk of discipleship, we all have that limit. We haven't yet given God full control. And when that time comes, when we do the wrong thing, when we do wound the Lord, when we grieve the Holy Spirit, just remember, He's rooting for you to do the right thing. And equally as important, even if you do the wrong thing, He will take you back. Every single time. He will always, always forgive anyone who comes back to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the stories in Your Word that tell us who Jesus was and what He came to do. We're thankful, O oh Lord, that You were in charge of all of this. You made sure that Your will was done, that our souls were saved, redemption was paid for. Thank you for the love that that took. And it's a high bar you've set for us that we would love each other that much. And most of us would admit we're a long way from that. But I pray that we would strive for it every single day, that we would grow in our ability to love one another and even to love people uh, who are the Judases in our lives. Lord, bring us to that point faithfully by your grace. In the name of our Savior Jesus, amen.